Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Podcast Network. Today we are talking to Dr. Eskandar Sadegi-Bourougerdi of Goldsmiths University of London about his new book, Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. The book studies the rise and evolution of the reformist political thought in Iran and analyzes the complex network of publications, study circles, and think tanks that encompassed a range of prominent politicians and intellectuals in the 1990s. It maps and analyzes a wide field of political and ideological issues that are keys to understanding Iran's revolutionary state. Among others, they include the ruling political theology of the guardianship of the jurist, the political elite's engagement with questions of Islamic statehood, democracy, and constitutionalism, and their critique, or critiques rather, of revolutionary agency and social transformation. Dr. Sadegi Bourujadi, welcome and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me, Yakov. Very much appreciate the invitation. Um, can we maybe begin by asking you what was the very question you f- you were first positing when you embarked on this project? So the question that really drove the research was trying to understand how um, a, a raft of um, sort of Islamist uh, intel- uh, sort of uh, revolutionaries. Uh, and basically um, a cast of sort of characters and uh, various organizations that had participated in the Iranian revolution of 1979. Um, obviously, it's a sort of a, a watershed, often taken to be a watershed event. It's, it's even um, regularly cast as a sort of a break with um, what preceded it before, sort of in terms of, you know, the beginning of an Islamic revival and all these sorts of things. Um, so tr- trying to understand what these sort of individuals who participated in the revolution, who um, oversaw the later the institution of the Islamic how these people within the course of um, 15 or so years, 15 to 20 years uh, really underwent a major ideological um, transformation and then um, gradually came to espouse many um, sort of ideas and interpretations of both Islamic theology but also uh, political uh, doctrines as it were uh, which are recognizably uh, liberal um, and you know uh, whether from the classical tradition of liberalism or even um, to some extent later iterations in the form of sort of neoliberalism. So um, I was trying to really understand how uh, that transformation took place, how people sort of committed, you know, committed like some of them were even guerrilla fighters, um, very very radical about issues of social justice and obviously the distribution of wealth, but also obviously the institution of an Islamic state and how that sub- and how we saw that over that period of time, over the space of uh, throughout the 1980s and through to the mid 1990s, a major uh, shift and transformation, as it were. Yeah, so we're talking uh, just to reiterate this. We're talking about a group of intellectuals who have been. Uh, highly motivated to overthrow the Shah's regime, uh, usually uh, using a rhetoric that would be termed either Islamist or 
uh, Marxists who gradually become almost uh, aligned with the right wing, with neoliberalism and other uh, readings of liberalism within the structure of the revolutionary state, correct? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, we see sort of so in the throughout the 60s and 70s um, within Iran, there's obviously um, very much uh, uh, both the influence of uh, socialism and left-wing movements is very, very, very palpable um, and undisputed, um, despite the fact that, you know, following, you know, throughout the 1960s, and as they were actually quite brutally um, repressed, but ideologically were very, very much hegemonic. And on the other side, obviously, I mean, you know, um, the by at least sort of the late maybe 60s and throughout sort of the, the, the early and mid-1970s, sort of one of the preeminent leaders is obviously um, Ayatollah Khomeini. And by the time of the revolution, he is, he is pretty much the undisputed um, leader of that, um, that movement. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of debate about um, how clear he was about in articulating his ideas, how um, public many of those sort of um, ideas or his views about the nature of Islamic government were at the time. But I think it's, you know, there's not much doubt that Overall, the, the sort of the ideological constellation which was at work um, throughout the 1960s, 1970s was very much uh, part and parcel of a broader global story, which, you know, uh, encompassed um, the, strug- the anti-colonial struggles in South America, in Vietnam, uh, and much of what, you know, was often referred to as the, as the third world. And Iran was very much um, part of that um, sort of constellation and i guess um obviously many like i i I mentioned earlier that many people sort of see the islamic revolution as a sort of um, a break and a rupture with what came before it sort of often um, secular nationalism um often identified with sort of maybe bandung or with uh gamal abdel nasser in egypt and so on um but in many in many respects i sort of see the the iranian revolution as a sort of the last sort of anti-colonial um revolution and sort of coming on the back end um, of those sort of heady moments in sort of 1968 um, and through to sort of the, the early 1970s. And we see the, the and that's very clear in sort of the, the ideological forces and discourses that were, uh, which were dominating at the time. And, and so as you um, intimated, so um, following the revolution, we, we do see, um, and obviously then this follows the Iran-Iraq war and so on, we do see a significant um, um, a significant shift, and it almost seems as if Iranian intellectuals um, had undergone sort of a transformation which elsewhere had, had sort of taken much longer to undergo. We see it within Iran within the space of a mere sort of um, 15 years, and it sort of coincides uh, with the end of the Cold War as well. And that's also something that I try to bring in uh, in the course of the book, and obviously the influence of um, sort of Iranian intellectuals coming to come to trying to come to grips. Um, with um, the collapse of Soviet communism. And obviously, while many of them were virulently anti-communist, um, the fact that there was this pi- um, bipolarity, there was this polarity between um, two different visions uh, of organizing politics and society, the fact that one of them, you know, almost overnight or very quickly um, dissipates and is no longer seen as, you know, the second or the the other uh, sort of world power or superpower, as it were, is something which Iranian intellectuals um, did very did, did, did take seriously, and obviously they had to to some extent come to terms with what they saw as the um, the triumph of sort of um, of Western liberalism and capitalism. Um, 
there is obviously like an internal uh, story here as well, which I can um, address if you'd like, um, as, which complements sort of the, the global international one. So obviously on the domestic scene uh, in Iran, uh, we have a, we obviously we have the revolution. Um, there is uh, very much, uh, um, you know, radicalism is in the air. Um, there's very much the idea that uh, by taking the state, um, these sort of revolutions will be able to transform um, society and really create um, sort of a, a unique, as it were, social and political um, experiment in which obviously justice and equality and many other things will reign, or at least justice. Um, and as we see, sort of both in the course of the revolution, um, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of major uh, conflicts within the, the sort of within the revolutionary coalition. This almost basically breaks into almost a form of um, civil war, civil conflict. Then, then um, Saddam Hussein um, obviously invades Iran in 1980, and then there is this sort of uh, long, ongoing, extremely brutal interstate conflict, which obviously consumes uh, millions of lives. Um, um, so that obviously, and, and many of the people that I talk about and I've written about, um, um, many of them were either sort of ideologues of the revolution at the outset, or they were many, although they were younger, and many of them actually served in uh, various institutional capacities, even often fighting um, in the course of the war. So, um, so this obviously had a heavy toll, um, obviously on these figures. It shaped their experience. It shaped how they saw the world. So. Basically, by um, 1989, uh, and then following the death of Ayatollah um, Khomeini and the end of the Iran-Iraq War, which is sort of ends in this um, rather ignoble um, peace, as it were, we then see um, many of these uh, former revolutionaries increasingly sort of um, disillusioned, but not. Into, but, but at this point, it's still you know it, the, there is somewhat of a, a time lag. Like at the same time, as I said, we see the end of. Um, the Cold War, but by the early 90s, um, we see sort of um, basically what the, one of the main factions, one of the main groups that I focus on are, are Islamists who were um, pro-Khomeini, but generally had, you could say, left-wing inclinations or in some sort of dialogue with left-wing ideologies and had been influenced by them. So they had certain uh, views about you know, the distribution of wealth, about profit sharing in factories. And these sort of, so the Islamic left, by the, end of the 90, by the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, is steadily uh, marginalized and uh, pushed out of power. And this is really cemented in 1992 with the fourth madras in Iran, where basically many of these figures of the Islamic left um, that go on to basically become reformers are, um, are basically prohibited and disqualified from running uh, for the fourth parliament um, um, and various other offices. So we see basically, um, in the, following the death of Khomeini, this sort of factional rivalries, as it were, coming to um, a sort of a critical point um, and the left is essentially pushed out. And this is part of the internal story for the re- and, and the reason behind um, these sort of figures and individuals, uh, sort of all sorts of ideological reorientation and uh, rethinking many of the, of the sort of the verities which they had once taken for granted, um, putting, you know, throwing those into question. So on the one level, as I said, there's a global story um, where you see this broad, this, this sort of major sort of change uh, on the global scene and a major sort of ideological transformation. And on the local level, we see as a result of these um, factional infighting, the war, the death of Khomeini, there's also um, very much, um, uh, again, a need for an ideological 
um, re-examination. And so we see throughout sort of the late 80s and early 90s, this is really beginning to um, unfold. Mm-hmm. So uh, the book covers a lot of ground. And I think one of the way of uh, approaching it is to uh, consider some of the terms or concepts that dominate uh, uh, the book or the discourse you're covering. Um, probably the most important of all is the concept of uh, the guardianship of the jurist, as it's often translated. Can you explain uh, why this is such an important concept and uh, what really stands behind it? Um, well, the notion of the Velayat um, al or the guardianship of the jurist, um, I mean, it is a, in many ways, it is an old concept as an old idea and you know you can find sort of uh, much evidence for for it um in different um manifestations um from really the the you know some people argue from the 16th century in century but definitely from sort of the the late 18th and 19th but but um its modern manifestation its manifestation is is, is very novel and in many respects um unique Um, to Ayatollah Khomeini or um, so basically the idea that um, the jurists those who are the sort of um, the the chief and the sort of the preferred and the actually the ones who by right um, are entitled to interpret the Quran and the hadith and obviously um, issue uh, legal opinions and uh, Basically, basically, those who practice jurisprudence, they have a, basically the idea is that they have a right to rule uh, by virtue of their knowledge of Islamic law. Um, so obviously Khomeini, in a series of lectures, is very famous in um, Najaf. He delivers in 1970. These are then collated into a book, and this is where he basically theorizes this idea, which um, is anyone who's familiar with more traditional understandings of Shiism and obviously Shiite political theology Um, is aware that this is a quite um, radical idea and is still one which is um, you know there's a lot of um, um, sort of skepticism or criticism of it in both more traditionalist circles and reformist ones because it's seen as being um, essentially um, out of step with um, with the Shiite um, tradition which obviously which held I mean the, the standard uh, refrain is that um, that basically um, any state, Any state um, was essentially usurping the rightful claim of the uh, of the twelfth imam who's in occultation and um, and at an at an appointed time will return and reinstate justice so it was thought that any sort of uh, claim to inst- 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 sort of institute an Islamic state which would claim to then um, um, to uh, rule in accordance with the sort of the precepts of justice and whatnot would be um, really kutkasib it would be like illegitimate. Um, and like I said, a usurper. Um, so Khomeini really um, negates that idea, says, you know, you know uh, as Muslims, uh, we need a state, we need to live in accordance with the Sharia, um, who are the rightful interpreters of the Sharia, and, and it is obviously the, the Fawbaha, the, the jurists. Um, and this is obviously, you know, then is subsequently um, is institutionalized in some way within the constitution of the, you know, and it's a, it's a messy process how this comes to be. And obviously there's a lot of debate whether, um, whether Khomeini initially thought this was even um, uh, realizable. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of debate, particularly of the various drafts of the, um, the constitution. 
uh, and the fact you know that it might not have been in earlier drafts and so and so and so on and so forth. But in any event, um, as events come to pass, it is institutionalized into. The, uh, the constitution of the Islamic Republic. And then upon Khomeini's death and undergoes another uh, transformation with um, uh, when there's various constitutional revisions um, and Ayatollah Khamenei, the current supreme leader, then becomes um, the, uh, the guardian uh, jurist uh, in the Islamic um, Republic. And then it's sort of, I mean, a lot of the, the criticisms which reformists um, sort of intellectuals have made is sort of, they, um, they talk about the detachment of the, the criterion of Marja'iya, um, basically being, you know, the uh, sort of uh, the highest religious authority and the most knowledgeable in terms of uh, of um, the Sharia, um, and usually also having, you know, um, a, a huge following amongst the faithful, as it were, detaching that notion from the the qualification to be the supreme jurist. So, but in nine, from in nineteen eighty nine onwards, then. Um, the, the criterion of Majay is taken away and and sort of the question of actually sort of political discernment, political insight is uh, is is then um, sort of exalted or is uh, given a, a sort of more prominent um, place. Um, so this is also sort of a criticism which both traditionalists, again, traditional Shia clerics will make, but also um, uh, various reformers. Also, the sort of the mandate of the jurist is then at least in at least in the written of the, the writ of the constitution is then said to be absolute, like motlaka, like uh, absolute. So it's not actually um, which you know it's a complex debate. I won't get into it, but I mean many people have made the case that Khomeini essentially theorized this uh, before his death uh, in a famous fatwa, um, in which he sort of says that. Um, the question of maslaha, sort of the public good, or some people sort of translate it as expediency, um, really uh, is uh, sort of um, primary, and um, because of that, can actually, um, you know, can suspend or um, ignore, in effect, um, sort of the primary ordinances of um, the Sharia, where previously, you know, that was actually quite um, an unthinkable thing. So even suspending Hajj, suspending. Um, playing your your various tithes and whatnot, um, and these things like in the Khomeini theorizes um, the Islamic state's sort of prerogative in doing such, and then this is obviously then again institutionalized. So basically, it's it is one of the key um, you know it is it is essential to the political theology of the Islamic Republic. Um, it's essential in many ways. Some would argue for how Iran is governed, but obviously, yeah, I mean, how Iran is actually governed is, is far more complex and nuanced and intricate matter. But at least on the ideological level, it is obviously a, it is you know the cardinal principle in many ways of the uh, of the Islamic Republic's constitution. Obviously, the hierarchy between those various institutions is in many ways defined in accord with this. Um, obviously, in practice, things are much more complicated, but that's why it's a usually a it's a it's a, a key sort of point of contention and grievance or criticism amongst both them sort of principalist sort of you know people of the right of the, in Iran and people on the you could be you could be on the more liberal side or people on the left and whatnot. So it's a complex matter. I see. But but what's fascinating here is that we are captivated by this idea of the uh, guardianship of the jurist. But as you describe this, and as uh, I think any political observer could uh, uh, discern if we look at this first decade of the Khomeini's rule, what ultimately triumphs is the interest of the state. In a sense, even Islamic ideas developed revolutionarily 
in the 1960s and 70s by Khomeini and others are being uh, subordinated to the maslaha, to the uh, expediency, or I would say interests of the nation state. And everything, in a sense, falls uh, in place only once uh, this supremacy is being established. Yes. So, I mean, I mean, like, obviously, I think uh, in the 90s, Olivier Ra made a similar point. And he sort of, you know, um, in a sense, it's interesting to see how um, really the Islamic Republic uh, was able to you know, arguably um, secularize um, Islamic law and obviously turn it into um, an instrument of governance, which obviously responds to the dicta to the diktat of or the dictates of uh, of you know, nations, the interests of the nation state or the interests of the the political um, system. So this is this is obviously a point which was um, made, and it was also taken up by um, sort of leading reformists, and they sort of welcomed it in the sense because um, because as I sort of hinted to sort of earlier, I mean traditionally um, in Iran, um, there had been, as it were, like a dichotomy between um, sort of the 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 king, as it were, or the the state, the state which was you know more often not ruled by, almost invariably ruled by um, a king of some description, uh, who would then basically oversee um, customary law, um, um, as with sort of tribal leaders and things like this. I mean, it's a complex one, but oversee customary law. Whereas um, at least since the um, you know for hundreds of years, uh, the uh, the you know, oversight of Islamic law over the Sharia would obviously fall to the to the clergy. So what you had is this sort of legal bifurcation between different spheres of sort of legitimacy, as it were. Um, and what some have then you know came on to theorize essentially was that what Khomeini had done in making you know putting maslahat, putting you know the 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 good of the state or the interests of the of the system um, at the forefront was to really um, uh, collapse those two spheres of le- of legality. So so basically, on the, so basically, the state, by virtue of being an Islamic state, would not only pronounce on what customary law and what the law, the you know, positive law, would be. It would also obviously pronounce on what Islamic would, uh, law would be, and they'd be, they would be one and the same. So what some theor- what some sort of reformist theorists came to the conclusion, uh, they came to the conclusion essentially that this was um, a kind of indigenous sort of modernity. And others have sort of described it in sort of, you know, a Hegelian cunning of reason and how sort of uh, modernity has come to be in Iran. Um, but I think the process is far more uneven and still we, we're waiting to see what essentially comes out of it. But uh, I think in the 90s when there was much there was much hope of a sort of perhaps a more radical um, transition to a sort of a civic republicanism, um, they, you know, the, the, the supreme leader was then meant to be figured as you know, a direct representative of the people who would be basically um, embody the popular will um, through election, um, who at the same time, by virtue of his religious status, um, again, like had collapsed um, the difference between both Islamic law um, and sort of customary law. Um, and obviously, yeah, that hasn't um, unfolded as they had perhaps envisioned. But we're still sort of waiting. Um, you know, it's still early days in many respects. And there's that famous sort of um, apocryphal line, sort of attributed to Chao and Lei about um, what he thinks about the, um, the French Revolution. He sort of says, you know, it's too early to tell. And I do think that, you know, in the Iranian case, um, uh, people are always sort of, um, you know, proclaiming that um, the experiment's at an end. Um, uh, and they have been since I think day one, but we're still waiting to see in what direction it can actually go, and whether the system can still undergo um, other sorts of um, 
permutations and changes. But no, this is um, you know this was a key issue, obviously, for many reformists. Yeah, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, for a second about this term of reform and 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 identifying conservatives and reformists in the Iranian uh, uh, political scene, which are obviously uh, not not just complicated but often confusing terms. Uh, you instead in your book prefer or suggest uh, or use uh, other two complementary terms that for the Western ear may sound somewhat confusing, if not outright uh, uh, an impossibility. The Islamic left and Roshan Fekrani Deni or the religious intellectuals. Uh, we sometimes tend to, tend to think that intellectuals and religious leaders are uh, members of uh, necessarily distinct, separate um, spheres. Can you explain what you mean by this term? What's an Islamic leftist? Uh, uh, what does it look like? And what's the religious uh, intellectual uh, mean? Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, the reason for, I just said the reason for doing that, the reason for that decision was that um, anyone sort of familiar with the political science literature on Iran or various political um, analyses of Iran, we just see these constant um, typologies of, you know, um, reformists, leftists, um, I don't know, rightist, uh, principalists, this sort of thing. And, you know, as is the want of much positivist political science, you know, that, that uh, there's a very much a desire for having some kind of ironclad way of categorizing the Iranian political system or categorizing the various forces which are competing for power. And they never really work. Um, and they're always flawed. And the Iranian system always seems to elude and escape and the particular dynamics of the Iranian system always seems to elude and escape it. And it's not to say it's exceptional, but, you know, often the, it just shows, I think, the limitations of the, this kind of approach. So what I actually did was a more kind of, um, um, you could say, more historical approach in, in actually using the terms which they use themselves. Um, and because I was particularly interested in uh, the confluence of both political genea- various political genealogies, which had emerged out of the you know, late 70s uh, through to the 80s and 90s, as well as intellectual ones and how they crisscrossed and um, um, and actually overlay one another um, and influence and impacted one another. Um, so, so, so these are these are terms which, like, maybe not chap Islam, you know, like Islamic left, but like chap, that is, is a well-known kind of factional designation, as I um, mentioned, which basically sp- those sort of um, dedicated. Um, supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini. They were definitely dedicated to his um, leadership, but how do you could say a more populist, um, economic, anti-imperialist um, platform? They were very much focused on basically the state's intervention in the um, economy in order to obviously um, uh, to contribute to questions of social um, justice. Many of them were also involved, for instance, in the um, the uh, American hostage crisis. And many of the sort of the leaders of the the, the sort of the, the Muslim students of the Imam's line—that was sort of the name of the group. Um, um, they um, many of them were involved in that, in the actual the hostage taking and things like this. So, um, and then this gradually emerges and solidifies into a sort of a, a, a self-referential factional designation with the, amongst the kind of political class within the Islamic Republic. Um, the Roshan Fekran Dini, the religious intellectuals, again is a, is again is a is a term which was taken up by um, those who essentially wanted to see who saw themselves as. Um, 
is providing a more critical, um, let's say, lib liberal interpretation of or interpretations of um, Islamic um, theology. Um, and they, again, um, overlap to some extent with the Islamic left, but they're also um, distinct um, and have their own, in many ways, sort of genealogy. But what I particularly focus on is um, sort of their role in sort of the, in the Ministry of um, Culture during the 1980s, um, and then subsequently in various um, sort of um, unofficial, uh, also sort of official publications as well throughout the 80s, and then later on sort of non-state uh, journals, which would then basically publish um Published this sort of their engagement with um, sort of uh, contemporary um, sort of Western theology, philosophy, and basically trying to incorporate many of those sort of philosophical and methodological, uh, theological sort of tools in their in their in their sort of engagement with the um, with the Islamic um, tradition. So uh, one of the most famous ones is um, Kian and the Kian Circle, uh, but there are many others. Uh, like I said, which are essentially linked to um, various different reading groups and, th and think tanks, a lot of them with sort of um, state sponsorship or some degree of support, some of, some not so much. But um, it was basically my way of trying to, what I ultimately wanted to do and basically referring to these, these various terms and the various kind of um, political and intellectual um, formations which they refer to is basically trying to understand what I call sort of the material structures of reformist of sort of reformist thoughts. So, um, so beyond simply just trying to study a discourse and sort of saying, okay, this discourse exists, what does it say? Um, or this thinker has said such and such, and let's um, sort of elaborate on what was said and then um, sort of examine those ideas one by one. What I wanted to actually was to show is that um, really there was a material basis to this, which was both um, affiliated um, to the to the sort of the um, the political class inside Iran, had participated in the you know in the foundations of the Islamic Republic, um, and it was in many ways connected to it but but often informally sometimes not more formally but obviously there were degrees to which that was the case and it, what it really amounts to is a network of various different nodal points of those think tanks of publications of reading groups of kind of interpersonal relationships between various people who had served in different capacities within the state at different junctures and that really um, and Overall, the sort of the, the sort of the pushing out of this sort of this constellation, as it was constellation of groups and individuals, is what really sparks the sort of the move to rethink how power and constitutionalism should be understood understood in um, Iran. So the way I think about it is what is often referred to as sort of a parallax a parallax view. So uh, they're viewing the Iranian state in one way by virtue of their position in the 80s and by virtue of their, their sort of their new position being pushed out of power as it were to a bit or at least on the, in a more marginal position um, view power and view the sort of the institutional arrangement of the Islamic Republic in a very very different way uh, and this is obviously then reflected in their thought so what I really wanted to draw was a relationship between uh, power and and their thinking and how that actually has influenced Fascinating now um I think one of the surprising facts uh, about these groups um, of intellectuals is the unique approach they offer to Western political thought. For example, one of the surprising uh, protagonists of the story you're telling is Karl Popper, who emerges as a major source of inspiration for these so-called uh, reformists. Can you maybe discuss in some detail the Western sources from which this uh, reformist thought uh, nourishes? 
Well, so, um, I mean, the in, I mean, it's quite a, just an interesting as an exercise in sort of how an in intellectual history and seeing sort of what thinkers um, were taken up and when and why. And some of it does appear to be rather, um, rather by virtue of particular personalities who had read in particular places and they, you know, and then, um, and on that, and on what level that is the case. So Abdul Karim Sarush is one of the more, you know, very well-known um, Iranian reformist intellectual who had studied in Chelsea College in London um, and was very interested in the philosophy of science. And he became then acquainted with Popper, and then um, he famously wrote, you know, a, an in, a sort of a, a, a sort of a, an interpretation of um, a reading of Mullah Sadra, which appealed very much to um, Ayatollah Motahari, who was a close confidant of Ayatollah Khomeini, and then he ended up being a very in- important, influential person in um, the the Council for Cultural Revolution in Iran. But 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 the point I wanted to make is sort of on the one hand, there's this sort of this um, the role of personalities and individuals, but on the other level, I mean, we try to also understand why certain schools of thought, why certain approaches resonated and then found themselves disseminated and really. Um, came to represent, I mean, the extent to which they really did is, is another debate, that came to really represent a kind of a, a, um, a philosophical and political orientation. So on the one hand, obviously, um, the sort of Iranian reformists and more liberal-minded came to a large extent identified, identified with Karl Popper, you know, and on the other side, sort of the um, Islam, Islamic, um, sort of the Islamists who had um, a certain reading of sort of the decay of Western civilization, as, you know, were very much um, advocates of a certain notions of authenticity and authentic sort of Islamic uh, being in the world. They became more identified with uh, the philosophy of uh, Martin Heidegger and um, and people like um, Ali Mirzapasi and others have, um, have written um, at length about um, these things. But in the case of the reformists, yes, Karl Popper was um, a crucial um, influence. I guess his um, his notions of falsifiability, his notions of the open society, and um, um, and its enemies. His famous book, you know, was uh, would be translated into Persian, would be you know very well received. Much speaking to many sort of uh, questions and problems which the intelligentsia um, had, but you know there are. It is quite interesting when you sort of go beyond um, Popper alone. You see, you know, Friedrich Hayek and his um, critique of the command economy is also. Um, very much. You, you see that quite often amongst um, reformist intellectuals. Raymond Aron and sort of his critique of sort of, uh, of Marxism and the opium of the intell- of, of intellectuals um, is, as, as, as the opium of the intellectuals is also there. Um, also sort of the famous sort of Yugoslav uh, dissident um, uh, Milovan Gilas and his critique of the Soviet um, system and sort of the one-party state uh, also um, also appears. And so and but but it's sort of analogized with um, the prominence of the and the sort of the preeminence uh, the political preeminence of the clergy in Iran is then compared to the communists. So this is why I sort of was earlier talking about the influence of these sort of Cold War and end of Cold War um, narratives. They very, they they find themselves sort of reinterpreted, recalibrated, um, and reprised in the in the Iranian context in ways that you wouldn't really necessarily um, think, and often often an unexpected and interesting. Um, 
ways and not necessarily particularly faithful to what the thinker in question was saying or or trying to do. So there's almost like a pragmatics of um, how these um, ideas and concepts and thinkers are deployed because they basically serve a particular purpose within the context of, within the Iranian uh, political and cultural and ideological context and do a certain work, um, particularly vis-a-vis, you know, various other ideological um, adversaries. All of those uh, intellectuals you're studying, or that you study, I'm sorry, uh, would probably subscribe to the idea of Qabzadegi and or the uh, the Westification, Westof- West the disease of being struck by the West, which has been such an important trope of the uh, Islamic revolution. But like the people who coined the term, they themselves also are seem to be captivated by Western thought as somehow carrying an aura of legitimation that other uh, systems of thought do not. Am I correct in uh, appreciating this this way? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, um, well, I think many of them had a ambivalent relationship with Ala Ahmad actually, because, I mean, he was very influential and obviously the language of Qarab Zadigi, West Toxification, was... Uh, was very, very influential, and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini also uh, would cite it and use it often to critique um, secular intellectuals and uh, political movements. Um, but what we really see from probably the late 90s is, I mean, there is a quite conscientious um, distancing from al-Ahmad uh, and his thoughts, and especially, I think, because... Um, one, al was not seen as a religious, he was, you know, he was seen as a secular intellectual in the first instance, and not someone who was, you know, well-versed in Islamic theology or Islam at all, and really just, as far as they were concerned, just saw Islam as a, as a sort of a, a political uh, tool to basically mobilize the masses, perhaps. So they were quite, I think, skeptical, but they were also critical of shariati and sort of this whole notion of sort of revolutionary, uh, sort of a revolutionary um, Shiism. So you see, from sort of the late eighties through to the nineties, a, a very conscientious critique of this, of, the, of that, of that sort of um, ideological worldview, or those, that sort of constellation of thinkers. You do see a very, a very conscientious and Surish wrote a sort of a famous um, essay, sort of critiquing the notion of kind of a unitary culture and talking about how Iranians were very much both influenced by Islamic and Persian and uh, and Western ideas and influences um and that was sort of very much to be like a defense of pluralism and uh, but i think a lot of it again is uh, because the mantle of you could say was taken up by the islamist heideggerians uh, there was almost like an even more visceral repudiation of it um on the point of what you're saying about the fact that um they themselves become you know very much uh enamored of um western ideas i think that's um Certainly the case. I mean, uh, very uncritically a lot. But obviously, you do see some criticism and attempts to adapt it to the Iranian Islamic context. But I think for the most part, um, many of the ideas which they take up are taken up uncritically. Um, And not just uncritically, I think they're often sort of profoundly sort of dehistoricized as well. which is not necessarily a problem. And I think it goes back to the question that I was talking about, sort of the pragmatic deployment of these concepts and ideas and certain ideological um, struggles, but then what you see often is because they're taken up um, so uncritically that then new issues and blind spots and omissions arise um, as a result. And I think this is definitely um, the case in uh, you know in, in in many of them. So I mean, um, obviously the hostility um, 
towards kind of state intervention in the market or the hostility to a state which is actually like you know pursues the welfare of its citizenry hostility towards notions of the common good and very much a sort of emphasis often on some sort of methodological individualism um um, yeah, a sort of veneration of the free market um, and these sorts of things. And, and I mean, I, we have to kind of understand where that's coming from. It's coming from largely because the Iranian state is obviously seen as this um, this big shadowy presence in their lives. So um, it's very much a response to that and saying, OK, this needs to be cut down to size. This needs to be not interfere in uh, the private domain and these sorts of things. So it's a response to this. But it, but then, you know, subsequently it does end up uh, uh, presenting um various um, problems and there is a sort of um, yeah a eurocentrism often which does uh, appear um, as a result um, so you already mentioned one of the uh, main protagonists of this story uh, Abdul Karim Surush can you give uh, our listeners a sense of the nature of his political and intellectual interventions and, and also the his reception uh, one can find really strikingly different judgments of his work in the uh, in the academic field Okay, I'm sure. Just just before I do that, I just would like to just say um, it doesn't give the impression that it's only about sort of um, Sarush. I mean, there's a whole... We need... Yeah, it's good just to say that there are obviously a big range of um, intellectuals and they're coming from different backgrounds, some from the uh, the clergy, some are influenced by sort of Gadamerian hermeneutics, others are coming from um, a more strictly seminarian background, they're focusing on sort of uh, jurisprudence and... Um, even Hadith science and things like this. So there is sort of many are sort of journalists who were clergymen and then left that behind them and become sort of mudwreckers. Others were in sort of the revolutionary guard and the sort of autodidacts of so people like um, like Ahmed Ganji, sort of, you know, people who had served and were, you know, very, very much, uh, you know, hardcore revolutionaries. And then... Um, becomes sort of this um, voracious autodidact just devouring everything and sort of very much interested in uh, Western um, philosophy and thought and political theory. Uh, but just to be yeah, but, but Suresh himself, yeah, he has a, he's obviously um, one of the really the key individuals and not just for his thought, but uh, for the for the political role that he also um, played, because um, as I mentioned, um, at the outset of the revolution, he um, he served in the Council for Cultural Revolution, so which was basically charged with Islamicizing the universities. Um, I think, again, he follows that same path of becoming gradually disillusioned with that project, not really seeing it as uh, working, tries to distance himself to some extent. And then he's really, um, his articles um, on sort of the expansion and contraction of the Sharia, which are published in a, in a journal called Kehan Farhangi, which was linked actually to the sort of Kehan um, uh, Sort of, inst- sort of institute, which obviously publishes the newspaper of the same name and these sorts of things, um, which is which was then was under the cultural ministry of um, Mohammed Khatami, who would then obviously go on to become the president uh, the president in uh, 1997, which would really inaugurate the reformist period. But no, so um, so uh, Dr. Sarush at this point is uh, publishes these very famous articles, which pr- uh, present a sort of um, a sort of historicist understanding of the Sharia. And uh, sort of takes his influence from uh, various philosophers of science, to some extent Quine, but there are others as well. Um, and um, and so that's sort of the first phase of his 
sort of intellectual journey. And then subsequently, he would write, you know, uh, a lot about um, religious government and the fact that, you know, um, Islamic government and human rights are compatible, the, the importance of things like the rule of law, uh, limited government, um, the fact that development ought to be based on sort of technocratic criteria and these sorts of things. So um, he over he would have, you know, a massive, oh, it, but particularly important is his sort of critique also of what he would call sort of Islamic ideology. So notions of revolutionary change, and this is where Popper comes back into the into the equation. So he critiques you know, any any possibility of revolutionary um, transformation, really. All sorts of change have to be sort of uh, measured. Um, you have to take one problem at a time. They have to be piecemeal and gradualist. Uh, and this is sort of written, this is sort of put forward by Popper famously in the, um, the poverty of uh, historicism. Um, so, so basically, this, amount, this amounts to really a significant part of um, his uh, also critiquing notions, like I said, ideology. So ideology is seen as inherently um, a, a malevolent, sort of uh, pernicious thing and influence and something that we should not actually indulge under any um, circumstances. Also, you know, scientific is a, de- is, is a uh, sorry, development is a scientific and uh, technocratic sort of uh, process. And I see this very much as in step with the time. Uh, uh, at the, at sort of, again, so the the demise of the um, the Soviet Union and sort of the, you know I do famously sort of you know Fukuyama proclaiming the end of history and all these sorts of things. So it seems very much part of very much of the uh, of the time that it became. But obviously, it was extremely um, influential because it responded to certain um, concrete um, conditions. Also, Sarush was just very important in um, in seeing his ideas and sort of I guess popularized versions of them disseminated so so apart from basically being the inspiration behind many of these sort of reading groups and publications kian and the kian circle being the best known one um he also um really sort of um was influential when uh, following khatami's um electoral victory in seeing that sort of this new uh, this new sort of this efflorescence of um, of newspapers that would emerge in sort of 1998, 1998 through to about 2000, where the reformist bent um, would basically become, in many respects, platforms for the popularization of many of these ideas. So we see them sort of leaving sort of elite um, reading circles, which are kind of either private or semi-private spaces, and then gradually enters sort of you know very much uh, the public domain through the popular press in um, readily uh, intelligible language. Um, and these sort of debates, obviously, um, are carried on across the press and whatnot uh, in calling for, you know, a more open society, one which... Uh, and, and at this point, we also see sort of the valorization of, you know, the, the press is also seen as, you know, a pillar of a kind of a flourishing um, sort of uh, reflect, democratic um, society and one that is kind of self-reflexive and critical and able to retain dynamism and whatnot. So Sarush is also is critical on that score as well. So actually overseeing or at least encouraging many of his disciples to uh, pursue this in a more, in a more um, popular sort of forum or platform. As kind of by way of concluding, can you tell us how you see the near future of the so-called reformist political thought in Iran? Um, well, I mean, I guess part of my uh, part of the, the book's um, conclusions, or I guess part, partly what I was trying to show, um, was that sort of reformist thought um, 
has also become entangled in various sort of, we could say, aporias or various kind of uh, blind spots, exactly for various reasons. One, because of the material conditions of its emergence. So the fact that um, there's this entanglement with various sort of state institutions and elites, um, but also because of the the point of time in which it's emerged. So it came out, obviously, like I, as I said, at the end, at a very particular moment, the, um, the end of the Iran-Iraq war and the end of the Cold War. Um, and then was very much shaped by that. Um, um, and the question is to what extent it's been able to sort of invigorate itself um, um, as a result. Also, there's this is a very good real question of sort of um, political repression, and many of these people have now been driven into exile. There's also um, the fact that um, some of the leading thinkers of this were profoundly um, anti sort of socialist, anti-communist, and this has also shaped many of the ideas which have come out of, um, which have basically some of its key contributions and uh, and sort of ideological sort of positions. Uh, so these have basically very much informed uh, the, uh, the kind of this coagulation of this, you could say, like ideological uh, formation, which is sort of reformist thought in um, Iran. And so, and the re- and, and like so, so the issue is, I mean, it really comes to a head, and you see it come to a head. So, at certain points, so a good example which I um, mention in the conclusion to the book is is basically the recent um, provincial protests which took place in seventy to eighty cities across the country, and what was actually interesting for me was to see how uh, many reformists actually processed that. Um, um, and many of them were profoundly kind of skeptical and hostile. And, um, and I think part of it is because um, those protests and the way they were done and they were sort of not organized, they weren't sort of, you know, um, appoint, uh, you know rallies at appointed times and places and conventional um, squ- squares or certain um, streets which are known to sort of um, have these sort of things so it was sort of unconventional protests un- un- unconventional forms of actually um you know critiquing uh, also the modus operandi of the state and this was not really assimilable into their way of understanding uh, political uh, change and how political change um, takes place because as i sort of mentioned very briefly is that there's sort of this notion of one of electoralism but also uh, whereby obviously the reformers can stand and be elected and then make a change through parliamentary means or through by means of their institutions and mediated by those institutions which they've set up, you know, in the space which they often, you know, civil society um, um, and sort of get, can give shape to that and can channel um, sort of forms of uh, protest. Um, another real issue is that, you know, a lot of those uh, arguments, protests were driven by, to some extent, obviously there were political, you know, political demands, of course, but a lot of it was also revolving around um, questions of growing sense of inequality and economics and stuff like this. So because of, I mean, as I see it, um, the, the considerable influence of uh, sort of Cold War liberalism and sort of anti-communism or anti-socialism to some extent has, and obviously so hostility to ideology and all these sorts of things has um, basically included 
um, a, a sort of a real hostility towards uh, questions of uh, economic equality and social justice. So then, I mean, it, there's there's a kind of a, a very a, a real deep reluctance on the part of many of these sort of uh, sort of reformist representatives to really um, take that those demands um, seriously and be able to incorporate them into their analysis. And this is obviously linked to a, a, another another quite serious problem. Um, of the reformist uh, sort of political sort of thought insofar as um, in the 60s and 70s, when the main sort of rival slash influence was um, various hues of socialism, Marxism, Leninism and such, um, obviously questions of just social justice and class conflict and political economy were very, very, very important. Um, and uh, and the Islamic left couldn't, uh, sorry, the, sorry, uh, Islamists of various stripes could not ignore that. I mean, like we just have to look at um, the writings of people, like obviously like Shariati, uh, but also people like Allah Ahmad, but who, who wasn't obviously an Islamist, but um, Mahmoud Talagani as well. I thought of Mahmoud Talagani, like he wrote a famous book about Islam and ownership. You know, so um, these were these were some of the concerns of the of the sixties and the seventies, and that was obviously tied to the fact that the left was very strong. But obviously, following the revolutions is no longer the case. The left, the left is essentially um, obliterated. The secular left is obliterated and also just i mean ideological discourse on a broader scale as i was talking about had changed it shifted so questions of political economy capitalism all these sorts of things were no longer on the agenda and it was thought that capitalism had of course triumphed Um, and because of the nature of the the fact that religious reformist thought is mainly concerned with religious discourse with religious texts and with questions of religious authority um Issues around sort of economic equality, egalitarianism, political economy, um, exploitation, um, and broader questions of imperialism and these sort of things were no longer relevant. They were seen as irrelevant. So, um, and reformists have thought, and we again we've seen since probably maybe since the financial crisis, but uh, on a global scale, but more broadly, uh, we've seen across the world both with the rise of sort of insurgent sort of. Um, right-wing populist movements, but also ones on the left. And this is clearly responding to like a, to a large extent, at least, to a material um, question and problem um, in the aftermath of sort of this uh, of uh, economic crisis. And obviously, even this can even range to questions of ecology. And obviously, Iran is itself has very quite serious issues around droughts and water shortages and these sorts of things. So, um, and reformists, unfortunately, because of the various reasons that I have enumerated, haven't really been able to come to terms with those um, properly, and so it's kind. Of, so it has become, to some extent, a rather, um, a rather. I don't say stagnant, but it lost the vitalism of the kind of the the, the mid nineties uh, and late nineties, when obviously Khatami was elected, and still there's very much the discourse of rule of law and human rights and civil society was sort of still preeminent in the US, the heady days of, you know, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. And it's very much a difference of progressive neoliberalism even was very much in the West, uh, you know, um, in the ascendancy. Uh, whereas now we're living in quite different times. And it's just, you know, and reformers sort of hasn't been able to really keep up and keep in step with that as, uh, as, as far as I can see. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating stuff. Um it's kind of we've taken really uh, a lot of your time. Can you maybe uh, close by uh, telling us what project or projects you are currently working on? Um, so it, it does very much lead on, um, in a sense, from the, the book insofar as um, what I was talking about and the fact that sort of the many of the debates of the 1960s and 1970s have been in Iran have been left behind and these sort of questions of... Um, 
colonialism, coloniality, what is sort of, uh, how does that uh, sort of, um, what, how was that thought about in the 1960s and uh, 1970s in Iran and critiqued? So I'm essentially just sort of um, look at reviewing that period, looking to that period and trying to um, see how we can rethink it anew because um, more often than not, sort of uh, the, that, the 60s and 70s is almost invariably sort of seen in this dark shadow of the Islamic revolution and there's almost this sort of uh, sense that... Um, those debates of, of, of that period necessarily led or would have had to have led uh, to the Islamic Republic and led to authoritarianism and intolerance and all these sorts of things. Um, so it's really um, an, an attempt to rethink that period, see what sort of um, uh, light it can shine, particularly on current debates around um, decoloniality, uh, questions of sort of uh, uh, political sovereignty, self-determination, um, which don't, again, find themselves um, entangled in the same old sort of uh, um, debates with which we're sort of familiar, particularly the debate between um, sort of critiques of colonialism or the post-colonial state and, and sort of authoritarianism and nativism. So I'm trying to basically show how uh, certain thinkers like Ala Ahmad or Talaqani and various others actually help us actually think about these categories anew as opposed to um, sort of reading them in the way that they, they often have been for, you know, for, for good reason and I very much spoke to a time as actually, you know, necessarily resulting in, 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 in sort of authoritarianism and, uh, like I said, nativism. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a big literature about sort of um, how Westoxification has uh yields a sort of an identitarian, intolerant, sort of nativist politics. So I'm trying to critique those ideas and rethink them and um, seeing how they could shine lights um, on debates beyond Iran as well, because uh, many people sort of often sort of Iran and working on Iran can be slightly disconnected from um, both on the level of disciplines and so other disciplines and, dis- and questions in disciplinary studies, as well as other areas in the global south. So, I mean, I'm trying to, the last couple of years, I've been trying to sort of link up uh, both Iranian intellectual movements and uh, political movements with others um, in the global south and situated in Iran in the global south. Because I think, as you mentioned in one of your earlier questions, for the most part, it's um, um, Iranian intellectuals have uh, really from the 90s onwards, have been in dialogue or saw themselves as dialogue and their interpreters have seen themselves in dialogue with Europe exclusively, with Europe, with European modernity. So I'm trying to challenge that in a fundamental uh, way. Much to be looking forward to. Uh, Dr. Eskandar Sadeghi Burujuridi, thank you so much for uh, being in the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, the book and some of the research I'm doing.